This is Word for Word, Public Radio's national speech series from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Penkava. As China ramps up for the start of the Olympics, it has had to deal with a range of challenges. Riots in Tibet, an earthquake in Sichuan, and perhaps less reported, locusts. They have chewed up more than three million acres of grassland, and they're moving toward Beijing. This has the Chinese government concerned. It doesn't want a plague of locusts descending on athletes and spectators from around the world. And so the government has mobilized over 30,000 exterminators to spray tons of pesticides on the locusts. Another approach comes from Chinese chicken farmers who have let their chickens run loose in those locust-infested areas. Chickens represent a natural and lethal force. They're capable of eating more than 100 locusts a day. The U.S. has its own pest problems. In the summer, ticks, flies, and mosquitoes bother humans. But there are also bugs that bore into trees and eat their way through fields of crops. Generally, the approach in the U.S. is also to spray pesticides to kill them. But it wasn't always so. James McWilliams examines the long history of the war on bugs in his book, American Pests, The Losing War on Insects from Colonial Times to DDT. It's his recent speech on that subject that we'll hear this hour on Word for Word. James McWilliams is currently a fellow in the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University, and he's an associate professor of history at Texas State University. Here he is, speaking July 4th at the 4th Annual Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. James McWilliams. I want to talk a little bit first about how I became interested in the topic of uh, a fairly esoteric topic, the history of insect control in the United States. And the idea for the book kind of came from two directions. Uh, The first book that I wrote was on early American eating habits and agriculture. And so I did a lot of research at the time on 17th and 18th century farmers. And I was looking for evidence of food production. But what I found was evidence of not just food production, but incredible efforts to control insects. Now, this seems fairly obvious. Of course, that, of course they were doing that. Insects were a chronic problem at the time. But it sort of hit me that this hadn't been explored, this hadn't been written about. And I did some rough calculations, and I realized that about 30 to 40 percent of a typical farmer's crop every year in early America was lost to things like the corn borer uh, or the potato beetle um, or the Hessian fly. And I thought that's interesting because a lot of things that I'm reading today show kind of similar percentages. Very often you'll read about farmers who are losing 20 to 30% of their crops to insects. Now, I know what has happened in between then and now. We've had this major chemical transition, but the figures really hadn't seemed to change very much. This became a kind of intriguing problem for me um, that I just sort of put in the back of my mind while I was researching my first book. At the time, though, my son, who was about three was, you know, in that phase where he was just examining bugs. I didn't know a thing about bugs, and he was picking them up outside and, you know, holding them up to me and asking me questions. What is it? Hell if I know what it is. I don't know a thing about it. So being the responsible father, I would check out books on, you know, these insects, and we'd sit down and go through them, and suddenly I was deeply fascinated with insects. Um, And these two... These two observations, one, you know, sort of side observation of what I had been doing uh, for my first book, and then this kind of current interest in insect behavior got me to thinking about doing a book on the history of insect control. I was particularly intrigued as I started to do the research of the fact that you have two animals, humans and insects fighting over plants. And for me, this became the kind of historical nugget. This became the kind of light bulb that I was going to build the book around. My argument in the book, uh, I'm going to sort of go through, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through the book and and sort of lay out um, section by section what I do, and I'm going to leave time for questions. But the argument in general is that insect management in the United States has historically failed because agricultural expansion created insect problems so severe 
that the task of controlling insects went went to those who went from those who knew best how to control those insects, and I'm talking about farmers, to those who knew the least about how to control insects, and that is bureaucrats. There are no heroes in this book. Well, there are people who do heroic things, but there are no heroes in the book. And on, well, maybe the exception here would be Rachel Carson. But on the whole, you know, writing the book, and I imagine reading it to some extent, is a little like watching a train wreck happen because you know what's coming and you watch these well-intentioned people make one bad decision after another in the attempt to control insects. So let me go through section by section, and then um, I'll open the floor to questions. The first section of the book I call the age of experimentation. And this begins with European farmers who came mainly from England to British America. And of course, when they came to British America, they encountered a brand new environment to them. But it was an environment where Native Americans had been living for a very long time. Now, Native Americans had an agricultural system that effectively managed insects. Whether they knew they were doing it or not really doesn't matter. But insect infestations were not a chronic problem for Native Americans. And the primary reason for this is that Native Americans grew what was called a complex. They grew a corn, squash, and bean complex. And this worked brilliantly in a number of ways. I mean, the beans would fix the crops for the corn, which would grow and provide shade for the squash. I mean, it was this wonderfully integrated agricultural system. But what entomologists have later discovered is that this system also is effective at keeping away pests. Who knew that pests, when they approach a complex of crops, often experience what entomologists call visual pollution? They don't know where to attack. There are too many crops in front of them, and they go somewhere else, maybe a patch of weeds. And so this worked. Now, the Native Americans didn't know it, and the Europeans certainly didn't know it. And they didn't appreciate this agricultural system very much at all. And as many of you probably are aware, what followed with European settlement was extensive deforestation of the east coast of North America, massive deforestation, to the tune of 40 to 50 percent in 100 years, followed by the implantation of staple crops. We tend to think of monoculture as something that's maybe you know, part of big industry, industrial agriculture. That's monoculture. Not at all. Um, this was going on in the 17th and well into the 18th century. So you had these forests that would be cleared, planted with wheat, planted with corn, planted with rice, planted with tobacco. This is an insect dream come true. No more visual pollution. And uh, um, ecologists actually call this... Um, Destruction ecology. When you rapidly destroy a set of environmental conditions and replace them with a single or just a couple of crops, you create the preconditions for massive insect outbreaks. And that's indeed what happened. You have outbreaks of the Hessian fly starting in the, in the, uh, 18, I'm sorry, in the 1770s. But before that, you have all kinds of beetles, all kinds of worms, things I really can't identify because the terms that they used at the time were so vague, it's hard to actually pinpoint what insects were doing the destruction. But it was happening massively. So after laying that out, you sort of have to ask yourself, what did they do? The common assumption has been that these early American farmers said, it's the way it goes. When you farm, you lose a certain portion of your crop to insects. It's like bad weather. You move on, you deal with it. And I think that assumption, the wrong assumption, among environmental historians has been the case because I think the belief was that without chemicals, well then, what else are you going to do? Turns out that these farmers were incredibly innovative at working to keep insects out of their crops. And I'll just name a sort of handful of tactics that they used. Whenever I mention these tactics to organic gardeners. Today they go, oh yeah, I still do something like that. So none of this is particularly new. I mean, we might call it integrated pest management to some extent, an early version of it. So as I was going through mainly farmer account books, farmer journals, farmer diaries, a lot of agricultural articles, what I was finding was that farmers were incredibly good at using what they called lure crops. And so if they planted a field of corn, and they noticed that insects that were feeding on their corn also 
could be found, say, in a patch of a certain kind of weed. They would actually cultivate that weed around their corn and weed it strategically, but lure the insects out of the corn into their weed. Um, they noticed that certain kinds of birds fed on certain insect grubs without eating the crops. So you would have farms line, farmers line their fields with these birdhouses to attract the birds to practice a kind of early form of you know, orntho- ornithological, biological control. I found one example of uh, actually a woman who protected her garden by collecting lobster claws, lining the lobster claws, hollowing them out, lining the lobster claws with honey, and planting them around her garden, which would lure uh, insects into the lobster claws, and then she'd clean them out and put the claws back and reline them with honey. So, you know, I collected these examples, and I thought, this is quite fascinating. These farmers, in order to come up with the solutions that they were coming up with, had to have an intimate knowledge of the natural world. They were ecologists. They were entomologists. Nobody was calling them that. They were farmers. But the range of their knowledge was, to me, uh, profoundly innovative and um, profoundly inspiring. But the irony, of course, the paradox, is that they're having to do this because of their own agricultural decisions, because they did more or less relentlessly clear forests and, and monocrop. Did they know Yeah, there were hints that they did know that by the late 18th century, there were hints that they did know that planting monoculturally was a recipe for insect infestation. But there was so much land, it was always possible just to plant more to make up for that lost 30% or that lost 40%. So that's really the first part of the story. In a lot of ways, I sort of say these farmers are at fault, but hey, look at what they're doing. Look at the extent of their innovation. Look at their knowledge of the natural world. Uh, So far, so good. The second section of my book I call the golden age of insect control. Farmers were innovative, but they were also haphazard. And a lot of times, of course, the solutions that they tried didn't work. I should also add that they were using chemicals. They were using natural chemicals. They would grind up nicotine. Nicotine was a they grind up tobacco leaves and use nicotine as an effective insecticide, still used today by organic farmers. And they would dust their crops with that. They used um, pyrethrum, which is also commonly used today as well. And they would ground up chrysanthemums to make pyrethrum and dust that on their crops as well. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes it didn't. And the question that I had was... How was this information spread? Was every farmer his sort of own bank of knowledge, or were they sharing information? Of course they were sharing information orally. You can't, as a historian, get a grip on that. Farmers meeting and talking happened all the time, no doubt. And I'm sure they talked about insecticide solutions. But then I realized that in the newspapers that were being published starting in the late 18th century, they would have sections about insect control. And anybody could write in. Any farmer could write in. And these letters are great because there's no attention to editing. They're semi-literate letters, very often. And they're incredibly humble. They're kind of like, I really don't know a thing about this, but let me tell you what I did. And then they'd list the result. You know, I went ahead and used a mixture of hellebore and chrysanthemum and some lure weeds, and this worked pretty well to keep the hornworm out of my tomatoes this year. Hundreds of these. And this was it. This was insect control. It was done informally. It was done using newspapers as a kind of sounding board. And this went all the way through the 19th century. I have to say, I initially planned to write a book just on early American pest control. It's my formal area of expertise, the early American period. But nothing changed. And as a historian, it's tough to write a book where nothing happens. I mean, they were kind of using the same techniques over and over again. Until 1841, and then in 1841, something quite dramatic happens, at least in the annals of insect control. A guy named Thaddeus William Harris, who was a medical doctor, um, wrote a book called The Insects of Massachusetts, Injurious to Vegetation. And it's that second part. You're thinking, that was a bestseller, right? Well, it was. It really was. And for farmers, it was a bestseller in Massachusetts at the time. Now, Harris is an interesting character in my book because he's not wealthy. 
And usually people who were interested in insects at this time period were interested in them as gentlemen naturalists. They collected. And this took a certain amount of leisure. The naturalist Cadwallader Colden said, the real bug collector has to be above the dunghill of men's passions. You have to be of the elite in order to do this. Well, Harris had a genuine interest in insects, but he didn't have that blue blood heritage. He had to work for a living. And so what he decided to do was to join up with farmers and take his knowledge of insects and go to farmers and say, let's work together. You know a hell of a lot about insects. I'm starting to learn a lot about insects. Let's bring our knowledge together and see what happens. He wrote this book in 1841, and it became a model for a new field called economic entomology. And economic entomology was a field of entomology that took entomology from the naturalists to the farmers. Entomologists now said, hey, I know all about life cycles because I've studied them. And farmers, you don't know anything about life cycles, but you know all about the solutions. Let's put these together. And so then what you start to see from about 1840 to about 1870 are agricultural journals bringing entomologists together with farmers and publishing these elaborate solutions to insect problems. Elaborate solutions in the sense that the application of the insecticides or the methods that were used could be timed with the insect life cycles. You see, ent these economic entomologists knew where insects bred. They knew when they bred. They knew when it went from a, the pupil to the larval to the adult stage. And they would work with the farmers to say, what are your bag of tricks? Here's what I know. In a sense, the analogy I use in my book is like they took a moving target and held it and now said to the farmers, okay, now fire. So I call this section the golden age of insect control because you have this kind of static period of cooperation. And I'm really impressed with this period because at a time when so many other fields were becoming professional in the sense that they were removing themselves from society and creating their own insular world, chemists were doing this, medical doctors were doing this, lawyers were doing this, entomologists sort of remained with their feet literally you know, on the ground, paying attention to, and this is really the critical, po critical point, paying attention to the people who really knew this issue well, farmers. As we move away from that, the solutions become worse and worse and worse. Now, um, the solutions that they came up with during this time period didn't change all that much. I mean, there was still manual control, there was cultural control, chemical control, biological control. All of it was used, but it was used far more efficiently. And the final thing I would add about this period is that this was also a time when nobody talked about extermination of insects. The word that was always used was manage. We will manage insects. There's no possible way we can exterminate insects. The third section of the book is about expansion. Another paradox. Right when economic entomologists and farmers seem to be getting a grip on this problem, there's a major Western expansion. Uh, land becomes available, it becomes cheap, most of it is subsidized, and people move west. And what do they do? They just take that monocultural system and they put it on steroids. There's so much land, if they bring corn into the west, they bring wheat into the west, they bring ranching into the west. Diversified farming is talked about, it's advocated, but there's too much land and there's no incentive to do it. And so there's monocultural systems created from the Appalachian Mountains all the way to the Mississippi River and beyond. I'm simplifying here, but you know enough of Manifest Destiny and this movement west to have some sense of how this played out. Well, needless to say, the infestations were biblical. Uh, locust outbreaks, Hessian fly outbreaks, something called the potato beetle. Insects were moving from the east to the west. They were moving from the west to the east. They were making their way onto ships and getting to Europe. It was essentially a sort of insect chaos. And this locust, hessian fly, chinch bug, the potato beetle were the main culprits at the time. And the San Jose scale, which would wipe out citrus industries very quickly. This was a major crisis in the 1870s and the 1880s. And the response to it was to create the division of entomology within the USDA. It's, it's hard to take issue with this decision on the part of the USDA. 
we have to come up with some kind of consolidated solution to this problem. It is now a national problem. Part of me wants to say this should never have happened because you're going to see what follows is quite disastrous. But at the same time, it's hard to think of an alternative. Farmers had cast their lot with commercial agriculture, with expansive monocultural agriculture, and therefore there seemed to be no other solution at the time, and this was in 1878, but to create the division of entomology. The first head of that division was a gentleman by the name of Charles Riley, Charles Valentine Riley. He was from England, but he moved to the United States, I think, when he was about 18, worked on a farm, and this is critical to me. He worked on a farm for a number of years and then got hired by an ag journal writing an entomological page. Very quirky guy, very talented guy. He was able to actually write with both hands at the same time and was incredibly prolific because he could, he could actually write different articles, believe it or not, at the same time. And he could draw beautiful pictures of insects at the same time. And these early entomologists really are quite um, eclectic in their talents because they had to actually do, they had to draft the insects. They had to illustrate the insects that they were writing about. So they were multi-talented characters. So Riley was a big advocate of biological control. I mean, he knew all about other solutions, but he was particularly fascinated with biological solutions to the problem, importing the enemies of a particular insect to control that insect. So what he started to do was experiment with this extensively, using his power as head of the Division of Entomology to undertake this effort. And in 1888, it paid off, and it paid off big. There was something called the San Jose Scale that was take, I'm sorry, the cottony cushion, cottony cushion scale. The cottony cushion scale was a scale insect. I mean, if you've ever seen these, it almost looks like mold on the bark of, of trees, and they, they decimate trees. And this was attacking the citrus industry in California, massive industry in Southern California at the time, the 1880s. And what Riley did was he sent a representative to Australia, where the uh, cottony cushion scale originated, and this entomologist went around finding what controlled the cottony cushion scale, and he found a Vidalia beetle, a beautiful little beetle, and he brought some of them back, and he bred them, and he released, in early 1889, I think about 20,000 of these into Southern California. By the end of 1889, there was no more cottony cushion scale. It had saved the citrus industry. And so there was this moment when everyone thought, this is it. This biological control is going to be the answer to our insect, insect problems. And I think if you would have asked any farmer in the early 1890s, you know, what's the best way to control insects, they very likely would have said, you know, I'm really interested in biological control. James McWilliams talking about bugs. He's author of American Pests, The Losing War on Insects from Colonial Times to DDT. This is word for word from American Public Media. Now, back to James McWilliams and his speech at this summer's Aspen Ideas Festival in Colorado. That brings the age of, this age of expansion to an end. And what happens in 1889 dramatically changes the story. In 1889, in India, a physician by the name of Ronald Ross, uh, an English physician by the name of Ronald Ross, isolated uh, under a microscope uh, the, a, a mosquito and the gut of a mosquito. And in it, he found uh, a malarial bacteria. And the discovery in 1889 that mosquitoes were the vector for malaria changed insect control in the United States dramatically. Once it became clear in the mosquito-infested east coast of the United States that it, were, it was mosquitoes that spread malaria, the solution had to be quick, it had to be dramatic, and it had to be relatively immediate. So the onus is placed on the division of entomology, solve this problem, control insects. One group of scientists at the division of entomology started to pursue cultural and biological methods, draining swamps, importing uh, lar uh, mosquito larvae eating fish. Another group pursued kerosene. Kerosene was potent chemical that would control for mosquitoes very quickly and very easily. By about 1910, the standard method of controlling insects was to spray kerosene over cities, to spray kerosene on any open bodies of water that could potentially breed mosquitoes. Now, you sort of sit there and think, how was, was nobody opposing this? 
was nobody saying maybe this wasn't such a good idea. Yeah, people were. I mean, there were really voices in the wilderness. And I think sometimes we have to stop and realize that our, certain, our, our sort of current environmental awareness is relatively new. At the time, people didn't really cringe at this. Making this transition to the kerosene control of mosquitoes even more effective was the fact that in 1895, Charles Valentine Riley was riding his bike to the Smithsonian to look at his collection of insects, which he kept in a drawer at the Smithsonian, and he hit a paving stone, catapulted off of his bike, and split his head open and died. 52 years old. I tend to think that it's very unlikely that Riley would have allowed the chemical transition that takes place, he would have allowed that to occur. But the person who took his place, his assistant, Leland Howard, was gung-ho for chemical solutions. Now, Leland Howard was an entomologist, but a different kind of entomologist. Another critical part of the story is where expertise came from. Riley's expertise came from the field. He worked on a farm. He corresponded with farmers. He spent, his, he spent his days working with farmers to come up with solutions to insect problems. Howard, on the other hand, went to Cornell. He was one of the first students of John Henry Comstock at the entomology department at Cornell University. Howard actually said, I don't really even... I'm not that interested in insects. I'm not that interested in agriculture. I just want to kill the things. I want to exterminate them. And that word starts to get thrown around. Extermination. Chemicals. Howard was all for this kerosene solution. And he used his sort of authority to push chemical research. That went very well. Using arsenic and lead as the primary insecticides to control for the Colorado potato beetle, all the insects that I just mentioned, the locusts, the Hessian flies. Actually, the locusts went extinct in 1902 for a bizarre reason. Uh, all kinds of beetles, all kinds of grub worms. Arsenic was the answer to that. It was a kind of ground powder. Lead, was, lead-based insecticides were another solution to this problem as well. So Howard got behind kerosene, he got behind arsenic, he got behind lead, he said, let's do it. Then World War I came. And when World War I came, Howard did something brilliant. And this is like, as a historian, you think, oh, stuff happens. Now, you know, stuff just happens. Historical forces cause change. But what's so amazing about World War I is you can see why stuff happens and why insect, chemical insecticides became so popular. Because one guy, Howard, did something that was just sort of bureaucratically brilliant. He took the division of entomology, now called the Bureau of Entomology, and he went to all the divisions of the federal government that were in charge of running the war, and he said, I got entomologists here that will help you. They will go over with our soldiers and help those soldiers control the insects that could make them sick, that could make them ineffective, that could weaken their, that could weaken their effectiveness as soldiers. And so he sort of took the entire division of entomology and he insinuated it into the war effort. And all these entomologists went over and they went over with chemicals and they did a damn good job of like giving people uh, lice baths with chemicals and they, using arsenic to control for insects over in the trenches of World War I. So when these entomologists came back, they came back saying that these chemicals were am- amazingly effective. We need to take this systematically to farmers. We need to use the division of entomology to go to every state entomological station. And, of course, as you know about the land-grant colleges, we can go to the land-grant colleges, and we need to disseminate this information. And the federal government can do that very well. I mean, when it wants to, from a centralized perspective, when it wants to disseminate information, it can do it effectively. So between the end of World War I and well into the 1930s, you have essentially a takeover of all this sort of wide variety of methods, the biological methods, the cultural methods, um, the manual methods. You have a takeover of chemicals. Farmers are out of the equation. Farmers become dependent on their extension agents for these chemicals, for information on these chemicals. And, of course, Dow is right there to help out Monsanto is right there to help out, and DuPont. They're ready to produce these for farmers. It's another market. Let's do it. So this is an incredible transition from medical entomology, controlling mosquitoes, to agricultural entomology, controlling insects that attack crops. Oh, yes, people opposed this. People started to argue about residue on, on fruit in particular. 
1925, Europe said to the United States, we're not taking any more of your fruit. We exported a lot of dried fruit to Europe. We're not taking any more of this because there's too much arsenic on it. There's arsenic dust all over this dried fruit that you're sending. Unless you lower the legal amount, we're not going to take it. So, you know, people said, yeah, 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 we'll do that. And, and the uh, USDA lowered it a little bit. Anyone who really opposed the chemical solutions, however, were viciously attacked. And a part of the story is the rhetoric against those who opposed chemicals. One of the things that the USDA was very good at doing, I should say the Bureau of Entomology was very good at doing, was sort of tarnishing the reputation of medical people who did question insecticides. It's very easy to do. Oh, these medical doctors are hysterical. And they don't care about farmers. They don't understand the farmer. They don't know what the farmer is going through. So this happened, and it really did sort of back a lot of, of, of opponents down. So there was opposition in the 1920s and 1930s, but it was minimal. It was kind of like Ralph Nader would be to the political process today. Sort of, his ideas were out there, but you know, as a force, he was kind of on the periphery. These ideas were kind of on the periphery. Well, by the 30s, the word that was starting to be thrown around in the scientific journals was resistance. Oh, now insects were becoming resistant to arsenic and lead. In 1939, these concerns became irrelevant because a doctor, by the, I should say a chemist by the name of Paul Mueller, working in Switzerland, this guy was just kind of a foot soldier for a company in Switzerland, and his job was to create a chemical that would, um, that would, that would moth-proof wool as it was being dyed. Because a lot of times they'd go to dye wool, and as they were dying, the moths would infest it. So this guy was like going to his lab every day and trying to come up with a solution that would prevent moths from attacking this wool before it, before it could be dyed. And he went in one day, and there were all these flies dead. And he realized that he had discovered DDT. And within a matter of months, the United States government had access to the formula. It was sold to them by the Swiss company. And the U.S. government was producing it in anticipation of World War II, where DDT was used quite effectively during World War II to control for mosquitoes. Very similar process happens. After the war, DDT comes back. It's not legal for farmers to use it at this point. But in 1844, 1845, the federal government authorizes a number of U.S. companies to start producing it. And there is not a negative word on DDT. This is the miracle drug. 1945. I, know. I work in too many centuries, so I always get them mixed up. 1945. What was the process to approve it? I mean, why wasn't it immediately approved? If there was a pause, did it mean they were going to test it? And what did they find? No, there was very little regulatory, um, there was very little regulatory testing that, that was done. Oh. And um, so the, 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 it was very rapid. I mean, it took a, a matter of months for the USDA to give the green light to DDT. So, I mean, the kind of regulatory process that you're envisioning should happen is really a post-Rachel Carson thing, and I'm almost to Rachel Carson where I can open this up for questions. So DDT sort of does its thing. It's quite effective. But, of course, studies start to come out, studies looking at the impact of DDT on wildlife, particularly birds, thinning the eggshells of birds, its impact on, on, um, on, on, on um, mollusks was quite uh, evident. And I think it was a 18, 19, we're in, the, we're in the 20th century, 1958. Rachel Carson was a marine biologist. I mean, she had written several well-regarded books on marine biology. 1858, she had a friend in Massachusetts, a woman named Elga Huggins, who said, you've, you've got to come see something, Rachel. You've got to come see this. They spray DDT in my neighborhood. And she had this little bird sanctuary, a pond, the bird sanctuary in the backyard. She said, you're not going to believe it. And, and Rachel Carson went to her house. The two of them went out in a boat, and they sort of looked at the splendor around them, birds and you know, all kinds of cicadas. 
They sprayed that night. They went out the next day. And, you know, Carson literally watched these animals die as they were ingesting DDT. And that became her kind of cue. And she very quickly did this research. I mean, she knew where the research was. A lot of it was in British journals. But she sort of took it, she consolidated it, and she serialized it in The New Yorker. The book was eventually published of course, is Silent Spring. My book ends with Silent Spring. And what Silent Spring does is something quite remarkable. I didn't, didn't really talk about it very much, but after the acceptance of chemicals, there are always people saying there are problems here. There's problems with resistance. There's problems with the way it's being applied. There are problems with um, the residue on fruit. There are health problems for humans. I mean, that's all out there. It's out there. But it's not hitting the public. It's not grabbing the public's attention. It's very easy to rationalize these problems. And the, the public was rationalizing those problems. And what Rachel Carson realized was that in order to really make my arguments stick, in order for, to really grab the public's attention in a way that will lead to concrete change, um, I've got to write a book that shows that human beings are part of the system that they pour chemicals on. And I think in a lot of ways that's what distinguishes Silent Spring from a lot of the other arguments that came before it against chemical insecticides. What it did was it said, look, DDT, Dieldrin, Aldrin, Murex, Heptachlor, all of these things that we're pouring on the environment are not in and of themselves bad. But the way we're applying them is extremely dangerous. And when it gets into the soil and the air and the water, you might think, readers, you might think this doesn't affect you. You might think if it affects insects and birds, it doesn't affect you. But she linked the entire system together, and she created a system, an ecological system that had humans right there with birds, right there with insects. And she made it very clear how the linkages occurred. And that, I think, was the tipping point. And, and most of you are aware of what came after. I mean, after the publication of Silent Spring and the rise of the EPA, you know, seven or eight pivotal pieces of legislation were passed between 1970 and 1974, the Nixon era, my God. And you know, that's where I sort of wind up. Now, I wanted to go further, but it's another story. The third generation of insecticides is another story altogether. Um, but I do have an epilogue in which I say that the problem summarizing my argument, the ultimate problem with insecticides as they've been used in the United States isn't the insecticides themselves. It's not the chemicals themselves. It's who was in charge of applying them and how they were applied. And my belief with, when it comes to insect control, and this is as much true today as it was in the 17th century, and I would almost raise this claim I'm about to make to environmental problems in general, is that the ideas for solving them are going to be most effective when they're done in a localized context by the people who know that problem directly and intimately. James McWilliams speaking July 4th at the Aspen Ideas Festival. Listening to Word for Word from American Public Media. I'm Melinda Pencava. Before the break, we heard Texas State University history professor James McWilliams talk about his new book, American Pests The Losing War on Insects from Colonial Times to DDT. McWilliams spoke in early July at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Aspen, Colorado. After his talk, he took questions from the audience in Aspen. It took 325 years for us to recognize what the Native Americans knew when they were planting these crops in a group. They grew better that way. Whether or not they knew that they were, that they were insect resistant, we don't know. But we know that they knew better. But it was the incredible wrongheadedness of our forefathers, which we have carried on, that we never observed. We never asked them. 
they approached the world something like Carson. We're all part of this. The, the farmers approached it from an adversarial point of view. We, we are going to overcome it. The first locals who were not consulted were the Native Americans, and this just moved step by step even further from the locals then. But your, your book is, is tremendously illuminating, but very sad because it's a story of how we got to global warming, how we got to destroying a species every 20 minutes because of this, this arrogant, destructive, absolute determination to conquer the world that we are a part of. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the, this question of why the Europeans didn't listen more to the Native Americans is a fascinating one. And I would respond, I'm going to respond briefly in two ways to your question. One, I would say, I think we have to be careful about portraying the Native Americans as somehow ecologically integrated into the environment. Um, you know, the more we learn about Native American practices, particularly in South America, they were uh, quite environmentally destructive. Now, it just so happens that in North America, the population density of Native Americans was so very thin, their impact on the environment was not particularly powerful. Now, that said, they were deforesting the environment at a rate of 0.4% a year. It was reforesting faster than it was deforesting almost. Europeans were deforesting it, as I mentioned, at a rate of almost 5 to 6% a year. I mean, exponentially different. The possibility that they might have looked at the Native Americans' way of treating the environment and said, sensible, is quite remote, however, given the history of the agricultural system that they were coming from. So in a lot of ways, the tragedy, I think, begins with the Columbian exchange. I mean, it begins when Columbus, you know, discovered the new world. You know, as much as I think about that contact and experience, I have a very hard time envisioning Europeans ever looking at the Native American system and saying, aha, this is the way that we... That this is the way that we should do it. Their minds weren't geared that way. They didn't have access to the information that would have allowed them to make that kind of decision. So sentimentally, I agree with you very much. However, at the same time, we have to be careful about taking our, our quite enlightened modern understandings of environmental, um, environmental sustainability and ecological, um, you know, integrated ecological systems and applying it back to that time period. In a lot of ways, I sort of take the tack in my book, can't blame these guys. They just encountered a massive amount of land, and they came from a place where there was very little land. Of course they're going to do what, they're, what they did. Hi, I have two questions. Um, first, was there any period at which enlightened people did try to bring back the system of three crops grown together and you know, sort of what happened if they tried that? And then secondly... Um, translating the principle of um, giving the decision-making back to the people who have local responsibility, how, what would a company in, say, the chemical or the agricultural business do about that now? What would, how would that look? Well, okay, I'll, the, 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 um, the, the, the first question about um, if people are still practicing this, this complex, yeah. I mean, there are... Um, I was talking earlier with somebody about a farmer in... Maine named Elliot Coleman, who's a kind of organic, he's the guru of organic farming, and I've had some correspondence with him. He's got, I don't know how big his farm is, but he uses no chemicals and does not have an insect problem. It's remarkable. He doesn't know why, but he knows it has something to do with the, the combination of crops that he is using. So yeah, I mean, this, throughout my story, what happens is mainstream agricultural practices become alternative. And these alternative practices don't go away, but when I'm talking about agriculture, commercial agriculture in general, I'm talking about a chemical transition. Now, how, how chemicals, I mean, how chemical companies would deal with this, I mean, the Rubicon's been crossed in a lot of ways, and I have no idea how you would back up and get to that point where, indeed, we can 
start over and keep the problem local and have corporations create solutions that come from local problems. Although, my, the way I envision it is I do see a movement towards... There's so much criticism today of industrial agriculture that I do see a movement towards not small-scale farming, but mid-sized farming. I do think there's going to be a radical change in the way the world farms in the next 25, 30 years. There might have to be. And if those systems are different enough, I think that companies that produce the solutions for their problems chemically are going to have to respond to those demands. If small-scale agricultural systems start growing, systematically growing diversified crops, their chemical demands are going to change radically. And indeed, chemical companies are going to have to respond. I mean, that's entirely sort of sketched out and abstract. Um, And that's what I meant at the beginning, but this is a little like watching a train wreck happen. I mean, Rubicons get crossed in history, and it's hard to figure out how you go back to that point. But certainly there are going to be other environmental problems that confront us in the future where we can take these lessons about keeping the problem local and listening to the people on the ground who might have a better understanding of solving that problem and building the solution around them. I was wondering what happened to the locusts in 1902. It's really bizarre, yeah. Um, What happened was it was kind of a quirk of their breeding. Um, for whatever reason, they chose to breed in a, over a particular, probably the late, between 1890 and 1900, they chose to breed in this relatively small area in Colorado. Insects do this. They will often concentrate their, their breeding um, season in a relatively small area, and a dangerously small area like the monarch butterflies do. I mean, this worries a lot of people because the monarch butterflies all breed in this relatively condensed area that you know any eco-terrorist could maybe wipe out the monarch butterflies very quickly. So these locusts sort of contain themselves in this area of Colorado at a time when massive cattle drives were coming through. And the theory is that this is just the Rocky Mountain locust. The theory is that there was this quirk of timing where these cattle drives came through while these locusts were breeding and they were effectively depopulated. Yeah. I think maybe you could, would you comment on the Mediterranean fruit fly and what happened in California? And because in that circumstance, you had all the information about the chemicals and then the the political system overrode it in light of environmental issues with uh, releasing apparently sterile fruit flies. So it was well, really okay. I, I wish I could comment extensively on it, but the st- see, one of my challenges. This is this is really kind of a cop out, but I have to do it. One of the challenges that I faced in writing this book is I am not an entomologist. I'm a historian, and so I was able to get my mind around the biotechnology around the around the uh, chemicals that were used until I got to things like sterilization, until I got to genetic modification. I felt like I had another book confronting me. But what I will say is I don't want to suggest that Rachel Carson changed the way that we went after insects. I think she created the potential for a regulatory atmosphere that in many ways, and I suppose the fruit fly scenario bears this out, in many ways um, was not borne out throughout the, 18, throughout the 1970s and 1980s. In fact, I read recently that I think there were something like 120 uh, chemicals that the EPA brought under regulation in 1970, and today I think seven of those 120 are systematically regulated. Um, So I think what Rachel Carson did was she sort of created the precondition for thinking differently about insecticides, and she certainly raised environmental awareness about them. I think if you actually went to farms and looked at what farmers were doing today, I don't think you'd find all that much difference than you'd find. I mean, at least in terms of attitudes towards chemicals and chemical use. I recently visited an apple farm in western New York. It was astounding. I mean, this guy systematically used eight different chemicals to grow to grow apples, and so um, it, it, the arms race is still on, and I think sterilization was very much um, one element in that game. I think it was named Paul Collier, the British yeah, guy that was speaking. Right. He said that Americans, uh, well, what did he say? Oh, yeah, we brought the idea of bio biofuels or something, and the Europeans, anyway, the food crisis is caused by combination of Americans buying the idea that biofuels will bear, uh, get us out of this and the 
Europeans not taking on GMOs. And um, I don't know, seem, there seems to be some parallel to what you've said in the past about Europeans, and is there something you can comment about that? Well, I, with insecticides, there really isn't such a parallel. Um, what I found was that a lot of the um, technology to produce the chemicals came from Germany. Um, the French were certainly um, eager to use, um, I mean, the chemical that, one of the most popular chemicals that was used in the 1920s was called Paris Green. Um, so the, the French certainly did not have an aversion to using chemicals to control insects. The Germans certainly didn't. The, the, the English were maybe a little more skeptical of it, but not in any way that they were able to create a kind of opposition or to boycotting American fruit. Their concern was really with regulation. And I think this is where the GM debate really differs from the insecticide debate. I mean, with the GM debate, Europeans oppose, they completely oppose it for, I mean, moral reasons. It's not, it's not a regulatory issue. It is a we are going to have it or we are going to not have it issue. And they oppose having it. Uh, with insecticides, their problem was that, and this was a common perception that you know, the United States, anything goes over there. There's no regulation. And so when these crops were coming over, the Europeans had these fairly stringent regula regulatory systems in place to test for chemical residue on crops. The Americans didn't have that at all, at least not to the extent that made the Europeans happy. So that's where the resistance came. So I wouldn't say that it was in any way... Um, detrimental to the development of insecticides like it might be detrimental to the development of GM crops today. James McWilliams is author of American Pests, The Losing War on Insects from Colonial Times to DDT. He's a fellow in the Agrarian Studies Program at Yale University and an associate professor of history at Texas State University. McWilliams spoke about his new book at the Aspen Ideas Festival in Colorado earlier this month. If you missed part of this hour's program with James McWilliams, or if you would just like to hear it again, you may do so by visiting our website. It's wordforword.org. When you go there, you can hear this week's show, subscribe to our free weekly podcast, and take part in an online discussion about the ideas in this hour's program as well as those from previous programs. You may also search the Word for Word archives and listen to speakers such as the End of Food author Paul Roberts, Mary Tillman, author of Boots on the Ground by Dusk, and Dalia Mogahed and Irshad Manji on the question of who speaks for Islam. Thanks for joining us for this edition of Word for Word. For American Public Media, I'm Melinda Penkava. is produced by Larissa Anderson and associate producer Patty Ray Rudolph with help from Suzanne Pico. The technical director is Sam Keenan. American Public Media.